You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Keith Masbach, who is the CEO of United States Geospatial Intelligence Foundation, the USGIF. And part of that, he was the USGIF's president. With more than 20 years in military and government service, he came to USGIF from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the NGA, where he was most recently director of the Source Operations Group. He's also served NGA as the Deputy Director of the Office of Strategic Transformation, Director of the Frontiers Office, and as a Deputy Director of the Director's Initiatives Group. He began his professional career in the U.S. Army as an infantry officer in the Berlin Brigade, later transitioning to military intelligence, serving in the 18th Airborne Corps and on the Army staff. As a senior civilian, he led the Army Intelligence Master Plan Office, planning Army Intelligence Transformation. He then served as the Army's first Director of Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance Integration, leading the melding of ISR concepts and systems into Army joint and national long-range planning and programming. And he is a member of the advisory board here at the International Spy Museum. So welcome, Keith. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks so much for your kind introduction. I'm thrilled to be here. Now that we got the intro out of the way, we can jump right in. You have an interesting career path because you started as an infantry officer. Uh, What made you make the career altering, as it turned out, switch to MI? Uh, and is this where you really got your first taste of the importance of GON? Yeah, certainly I'd, I'd actually trace it back there to the infantry, right? I, I said there are two things uh, that you learn uh, as an infantry officer or a- any practitioner in the infantry. You get really um, knowledgeable about the weather and the terrain mm-hmm. because it has a super personal impact on everything you're doing uh, and a tactical impact, right, operational impact. When I was in ROTC at Gettysburg College, it, it appeared to me that if I was going to be in the Army, I should be in the infantry. The rest of the Army, through my lens, was there to support the infantry. And I, uh, boy, I had a fabulous time. The, the, the leadership opportunities and the challenges associated with being in the infantry were fantastic. But, but I also observed that it's a young man's game. Yeah. Uh, and uh, now, interestingly, I suppose it's a young man and young woman's game, uh, appropriately. But, so I looked for other things to do. And really, it comes back to being in Berlin. So what was there a lot of in Berlin? There were military police, because they were manning places like Checkpoint Alpha, Checkpoint Bravo, Checkpoint Charlie. Uh, and there was a huge, unbeknownst to me just how huge, mm-hmm. intelligence operation going on 
uh, in Berlin, sort of the, the crossroads. And uh, the head of Army Intelligence, uh, Lieutenant General Paul Menor at the time, came to speak in Berlin. And all the intelligence officers went, and our battalion intelligence officer grabbed me and said, hey, come see him speak. And he was just a mesmerizing speaker, uh, 6'5", uh, very broad-shouldered, confident, not what my, I had in my pic- my head that I pictured most intel guys, nerdy frankly. Nerdy intel guys, right. right. And, uh, and he was inspiring. And that was enough. And that, that spurred the phone call uh, to the infantry branch and said, uh, you know, can I, can I think about switching? And, and, yeah, sort of the rest is history. Well, I would think even in ROTC, you're at Gettysburg College, you have the world's greatest staff ride within a couple of miles of campus. I mean, if you look back historically at some of those, I mean, you have some pretty interesting lessons learned right there about the importance of terrain and everything else, getting the high ground in Gettysburg. Yeah, I mean, the, the Gettysburg battle, not until after I graduated, some years after my gradu- I graduated, that my mother was doing genealogical research that I uh, discovered that my great-great-great-grandfather actually fought at Gettysburg. Uh, my mother was from Georgia, and he fought in Longstreet's Corps. Uh, but that really, to your point, is where I learned about the military significance of terrain, right? If you look at each of the three days of those battle, uh, that battle, how things unfolded, uh, interior lines versus mm-hmm. exterior lines, seminary ridge versus cemetery ridge. Uh, uh, the, the fateful decision, right, by General Lee, who had been very successful fighting defensive battles to go on the offensive. But th- there, uh, to your point, there is almost no better place and certainly very accessible right. uh, to understand the military significance of terrain than a battlefield like Gettysburg. I mean, even Buford, when he first gets there, understanding the importance of, of capturing the high ground and not giving it to, to Heath and everyone moving up. I want to ask you, because geospatial, and we'll get into kind of the nuts and bolts of it, but everyone, I think, may understand that it's, it's incredibly technical. There's a lot of of not only technology involved in it, but there's technique in the analysis of geospatial intelligence and the collection of it. So there's a, there seems to me to be a pretty steep learning curve in going not only from infantry, but even just from general military intelligence to try to go to geospatial. And this is, you know, a couple decades ago, I'm not going to age you, but you're not 25, but this is prior to, you know, full-fledged GPS functioning and, and you know, that age uh, where... Uh, it was, I don't want to say it's in infancy, but it's not necessarily anywhere near where it is today. Yeah, well, here's the good news for those who are aspiring geo-enters. I was a political science major, and, and essentially my graduate work was also in political science. Uh, I haven't taken a math course since junior year of high school, <laughs> and I, I wear that as a badge of pride and with, with some embarrassment as well, perhaps. But it, it is indeed a technical discipline. The beauty of uh, my time in the United States Army was when I transitioned to military intelligence, I really saw myself as an analyst. And indeed, at the 18th Airborne Corps, I worked in the Corps Intelligence Center. I had uh, then U.S. Atlantic Command AOR was my responsibility, and I needed to know what was going on and be able to provide intelligence to the, the Corps commander and staff and our subordinate divisions and other units. Uh, as only the Army can do, uh, I was thrown into command of a unit that had uh, imagery and signals intelligence uh, analysts and equipment, and uh, it sort of sink or swim. And it was a lot of weekends uh, as I took command, sitting with warrant officers and non-commissioned officers and having them teach me about it. And then, and then it was just a, a huge learning curve. And then from there, 
that really is how that that is the genesis of how I end up where I am today. But it it is a very, uh, in some ways, almost unique. I think to the military services to throw you into something cold and say, um, you know, good luck. Yeah, I would think that some of the people growing up today who are in college or grad school or early career may have grown up with some of the tools already, right? I mean, I mean, Google Earth now is like fifteen, you know, or more years old. You know, that's that's basic technology that people kind of understand. I mean, the idea of being able to pull up a, a GPS on your phone, for me even, you know, going back to the old army pluggers, as we call the old GPS that were this size, you know, massive compared, you know. Um, but most of the kids today uh, kind of have that background anyway. Yeah, look, I, I think we've got a generation now, uh, and, and this is certainly a, perhaps an overused term, right? But we, we've got geoint natives versus uh, geoint immigrants like myself. Uh, I remember sitting down with one of my sons some years ago and showing him when Street View came out. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at our house, and I said, well, what do you notice about this? And I, I was prepared to give a tutelage on uh, a- analysis. And he said, well, uh, it's the spring. And I said, well, how would you know? And he goes, well, there's the, the, the dogwood tree here is flowering. And he said, it's a Thursday. Well, I said, how could you know that? He goes, well, the recycle bins are out. <laughs> and he said, it's probably Thursday afternoon. And I said, well, how, how do you know that? Well, the re- recycle bins are upside down. They usually come right around midday. Uh, and, and, and he continued to talk about the things that he understood innately, mm-hmm. right, uh, intuitively from that. And that was, a, that was an important learning uh, opportunity for me uh, that, that we've got a generation now that is used to looking at the world from the top down that understands how that transitions to a, a street view if you will and uh, understands precision navigation as part of their everyday life uh, they, they wouldn't think to, to do anything without it they're using it to you know now that my children are older uh, they're using it to find friends at, at, at bars and who's where and who's doing what, and they're dropping geotags to let each other know what, what they're doing. So it, it is indeed an, an interesting transition that's happened just in the, the time of my career. A, a lot of what you describe people out there may think of as, well, that's imit, right? That, that's imagery analysis. Like what, why, what makes it special and geospatial? Like what takes it to that next step, or is imit an element of geospatial or something of its own discipline? Yes, you know, I, I, uh, as one of my mentors, Jim Clapper, used to say, I, I was at the scene of the crime of some of these things, the creation of the National Imagery and Mapping Agency. This idea that we had operating concepts for our future forces uh, and some folks in the Department of Defense in the U.S. and the intelligence community that recognized that these very expensive and in many cases then very secret uh, precision weapons uh, were going to be without precision data would be precisely delivered somewhere yeah. right and so they they knew and, and I sometimes say that I think they had Google Earth in their head I think they were prescient and I think they saw the value at that time of this shotgun marriage that occurred between the imagery community and the then mapping community both with strong heritage and both with a proud histories and a, a very strong sense of identity and that shotgun marriage to create the national imagery and mapping agency was not without some risk but i believe uh and know from being there at the time that it was about uh you know proverbially skating to where the puck was going to be preparing mm-hmm. for 
uh, uh, demands on future battlefields that had that were just emerging. This geospatial intelligence is not new. I mean, if you look at the NGA traces its heritage back in the United States to the Lewis and Clark, you know, the, the, the idea of mapping the West and understanding terrain. I mean, even before that, I mean, my favorite, if you have favorite battles, but my, my the most interesting battle to me in the Revolutionary War was the Battle of Cowpens, which took place right before the, you know, the very important Yorktown battle. And that was essentially a geospatial battle where, where the American commander understood the terrain better than the, his British counterpart. You know, so this is not a new thing. Imagery intelligence, of course, is relatively new because you've got to get above the target to do it. Um, but you hear a lot more about the successes of Emmett, you know, whether it's a Cuban Missile Crisis or other things. Are we just misterming kind of this intelligence and, and not realizing the impact of the geospatial side of the, the, the house on this? No, I, I, I love the question. And, and let me go back to something you asked Previously, which is wow, is is imagery uh, intelligence imminent a subset of GON, or how does this work? If I could roll back the clock, I think something that we failed to do collectively as a community, uh, and again, I have, I have some small uh, ownership of this, is it's been very clear to those of us who are in or around the intelligence community how SIGINT is defined, mm-hmm. signals intelligence, right? And it's got um, uh, you know ELINT below it. Uh, and it's got fizzent below it, and it's got comment below it, but we understand that SIGIN is this umbrella term. And I don't think we did a good enough job of saying, all right, we are creating a new umbrella term. That's going to be geospatial intelligence. And underneath that, we're going to have imagery intelligence uh, prior to that photo interpretation, if you will. Geospatial information of all types to include human geography, all layers, whether they are physical layers or political boundaries uh, and bathymetry, right? And then this idea of data management, being able to, to pull it all together, uh, and, uh, and now I would throw in data analytics and data visualization, and it's really the crossroads of those things that actualize the idea of geospatial intelligence. So while we didn't do a good enough job of clearly articulating, really, we, we were one PowerPoint slide short <laughs> of, of being able to, or everybody to go, okay, now I get it, and using SIGINT, right, as that analog. Right. Uh, and to this day, it causes questions and, right. and exchanges like this. Well, I, I've heard a lot of geoenters talk about understanding the world or, or the battle space in four dimensions, and that seems to be a big push nowadays. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Because people may have heard of you know that concept, and certainly three-dimensional understanding is something that is happening more and more now. But where, where does that fourth dimension make a difference? Well, it, it's, right, it's X, Y, Z. And again, I've uh, previously mentioned my <laughs> lack of math education and prowess. Um, but it's time. It, it's the action uh, of, of these things, understanding things in space and time. And the relationship uh, with time and geo is very, very close. Uh, I had the good fortune to visit one of my sons who's studying in London this semester uh, just a few days ago. And, of course, as a good geo geek, I, uh, I, went, I made the hodge to uh, the, you know, the Greenwich Observatory and straddled the prime meridian and saw the home of Greenwich Mean Time. Uh, and we have to remember that it's... Uh, when we th- talk about GPS, we're talking about an element of something we call positioning, navigation, and timing. Right. And, and, and so place and time 
were what mariners needed to know when they took off out of the port in London to head, to head out on their journey to be able to synchronize where they were with when they were there because that's what allowed them to figure out their position later in their journey. So I think this idea of X, Y, Z, T has always been there. Our ability to watch things over time now with dynamic imaging, the ability to stare at things uh, like we did in, uh, have done in the counter IED fight, to be able to stare at a place and then be able to draw back in time uh, where things came from that ended up in an IED planted by the road uh, is a good exemplar of understanding X, Y, Z, and then the, the dimension of T added. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you've talked a little bit about the kind of the, the evolution of this time while you've been in and out of government. I, I'm wondering if the, the, the pace of operations in the last 15 years post 9-11 has helped bring GeoInt to the forefront, M mainly because, you know, think about us operating now in areas we never really considered, certainly during the Cold War, as prime theaters of operation, whether it's in Africa or certain places in the Middle East or in East Asia. I mean, those were always obviously part of the world, but now we actually are sending in troops. We have special operations forces there. The topography, terrain, you know, anthropological, under, sociological understandings of those areas and regions matter a hell of a lot more now, perhaps, than they did prior to the global war on terror, whatever what do you want to call it. Look, they've always mattered, right? right? It, it, it's about our ability to, uh, to, to deliver. Uh, we kind of conceptualize this idea of bringing imagery and mapping together in one agency uh, in and around the 1996 time frame with the advent of the National Imagery and Mapping Agency and then sort of reimagined uh, that into the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and this idea of GeoInt uh, in about 2003. That, that 2003 decision was, was very powerfully shaped by experiences right immediately post 9-11 uh, and the demands to, to your point of understanding uh, history and culture and religion and language as it pertained uh, to political boundaries on, on the ground and allegiances and the real centers of power. Uh, you know, we, we uh, early on in my intelligence c career, there was sort of a tenet that we learned that the place you knew we would be fighting in the future would be at the intersection of four map sheets <laughs> in a country where we didn't speak the language. Yeah. Uh, and it, uh, and it, it, actually, it actually came to pass. I think if my history is correct, I think the, Ranger, the Rangers' first jump into Afghanistan, if, if I recall correctly, was, was actually at the intersection of four <laughs> map sheets, right? Um, uh, and so not so funny if you're in the middle of the operation. Right. But, but yes, the demand, the, the demand curve has grown. The expectations have grown because people now have access to precision navigation data uh, and imagery and things in their private lives. Right. And when you are a special operations soldier deployed overseas, the idea that you might not have that immediately available, dynamically available, uh, to support your operations is, is absolutely ponderous to you. So, yes, the demand curve, the demand for uh, precision uh, has absolutely continued to grow. And the, 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 the hunger uh, for this information, both for planning and for execution. The one thing I'd add in on the end is there's, there's a tremendous currency uh, uh, in the value of this information in creating and sustaining coalitions, right? What does it mean to go into a country? 
that has been unable to accurately map itself mm -hmm. for its own purposes, all the way to things like cadastral data, right? You can't own land if you can't identify parcels of land that can be mortgaged with a bank. So our ability to go in and pr provide precision navigation, precision geospatial information to a country, which allows us to collect it and then hand that whole data set over to them is just a huge win-win. And so as we look at expeditionary requirements around the globe, our ability to use that as a, as a, a you know, a relationship building, trust building activities, I, I think holds great promise. Yeah, absolutely. And the, one of the reasons I brought that question up is I think of the anecdotal story of during Desert Storm when Schwarzkopf's big gamble of doing the big left hook out into western Iraq. And at the time, there were very few maps, if any, that mapped, that understood that western Iraq approach. And it was a mid-level staff officer at the Pentagon who slept down to the Library of Congress and pulled out an old archaeological map of western Iraq from like 1905 and that was the foundation for you know a lot of the planning for this invasion which today you'd be like that's ridiculous but this is not even a generation ago and, and seeing the difference between 1991 of having to go to the Library of Congress and get a paper map out to run military operations and today where the technology is leaps and bounds ahead you know just trying to I'm a historian right so I'm looking for causality like, how did that that transition take place? I mean, you talked a little about how the mid-90s and then obviously after 9-11. Is there anything else? Is it, it technologically driven? As new technologies appeared, has it helped to kind of be channeled into making GeoInt more, you know, more, bring it more to the forefront than it had been before? Or is it generational? Are there people? Are there certain voices? Like you talked about Clapper, is he a voice that helped bring GeoInt to the forefront? I know it's like a 90-part question, but... I think you get the idea of what I'm trying yeah, so to I'll, add. I'll put it on you to uh, bring, bring me back to things I, I might have missed in your multi-part tome. Um, yeah, so there is something going on that we uh, termed uh, in an article in our Trajectory magazine about two years ago, the Geo, the GeoInt Revolution. Uh, if we go back a few years before that to about 2008, uh, some colleagues at Penn State, one of our accredited uh, GeoInt certificate programs, their public broadcasting affiliate came to us and said, hey, we've kind of been convinced by our faculty here that there's this revolution going on in this geospatial stuff. And, and uh, we worked with our member companies and a peer organization, and we funded a series of uh, videos that they placed on the web. Unfortunately, we weren't able to later put it together into a PBS uh, special that would have gone nationwide. But it, it still sits on the web, and while it's a tad dated, it was a great articulation of what this geospatial revolution enabled, right? Uh, th there's, no, there's no FedEx without precision geospatial information. That goes same for UPS, et cetera, right? When you look at, at Walmart as a logistics company which has stores driven by their ability to master and understand uh, uh, geospatial. Uh, as we come forward in time, uh, it appeared to us as we got to eight years later that there was, in fact, a geospatial intelligence revolution. And, and that was, to your question, absolutely being driven by things going on in the commercial world, right? And until recently, uh, Uber was a location company that didn't own a car. Right? Their entire business model uh, rests on their ability to master location. And even now, as they are developing the technologies for autonomous vehicles, 
that's all a geolink right. problem, right? Because that's LIDAR. That's integrated with known against the unknown. And so there has been a, a, parallel, eff, uh, a parallel effect, uh, I would say, of this geospatial intelligence revolution and eye-watering technological advances in the commercial world, driven largely by uh, consumer-facing technologies. Uh, at, at the same time, tremendous advances uh, driven by operational need in the DOD intelligence and, and, to a certain extent, the Department of Homeland Security space, uh, and, and those things coming together. Uh, I, I think that uh, you know, something like 70 or 80 of our, uh, percent of, of our critical infrastructure in the United States is managed in, in the private sector, you know, railroads and banks and power distribution and what have you. Uh, and so they are charged with protecting that and understanding that. Uh, and so there's, there's things they can learn from us, from being on battlefields uh, around the world and, and operations globally since 9-11 uh, attacks on our nation. Uh, and, and so they can learn from us and we can learn from them. And that, that exchange uh, is where there's some really exciting things going on. Well, we talked big picture Let's bring it down to like the battlefield level because I think what's interesting, uh, interesting byproduct of 9/11, and this is across the intelligence community, is you're starting to see analysts being deployed, forward deployed, and that seems to be the case also with with Jew and analysts bringing that technology to the battlefield. Like, how has that changed? I mean, the NGA support teams or the NSTs. How has that transformed the way a platoon or a company does war today? Right, and you know. It's interesting because uh, just prior to 9/11, the bulk of our efforts, as we as we architected the future of Department of Defense and Intelligence Community cooperation, uh, was very focused on this idea of reach back. How could we uh, minimize the footprint forward, take advantage of sensors, backhaul that information to clusters of analysts, and then provide uh, actionable information and intelligence forward. But we found was as we were able to uh, put sensors in the hands of smaller and smaller units, uh, the backpackable Raven UAV, right, that can be assembled and tossed up in the air to help a, a marine platoon, a marine company, understand what's over the next hill. Well, you don't want to be backhauling that right, right somewhere uh, and, and the, the communications burden associated with that, but rather you've got the handheld screen right there at the platoon level and company level, someone that can understand it and make sense of it and turn to a commander, a decision maker, and say, so what? Boss, I see this, and I think this is what it means. Uh, and this has happened not just in GEO, and it's happened across the board. A revolution in uh, the SIGINT support forward uh, happened uh, at the same time. The ability to move processing power forward so that things that were being grabbed off the battlefield were immediately available, immediately actionable. Uh, if you think about the change in special operations ta uh, tactics enabled by this, uh, I don't think that any of us would have envisioned that imagery analysts and SIGINT analysts, uh, later GEOINT analysts, would be flying in uh, to, to hot... Um, operational areas to do immediate extraction of intelligence to hand back to our tiered special operations forces to then go do a, the next raid within two hours of the mm -hmm. first one. And those are just things that this, this ops concept of pulling ever closer and integrating intelligence into operations, uh, I, there was a term for a while, intelligence-driven operations, in fact. Uh, and so to so the last part, this idea of, you know, 
uh, Stan McChrystal, General Stan McChrystal, right, uh, was someone who really saw the value in this, uh, the, the, the inexorable ties that need to be created uh, and trust between intelligence and operations. And in his case, leading coalition warfare, breaking down some of the barriers that prevented us from sharing intelligence with people who are fighting and dying alongside right. of us. Jim Clapper, right, is the director of uh, NEMA, then the, the uh, as I like to say, the transmogrification to NGA, then as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, and then as the Director of National Intelligence, uh, recognized this and saw this. Uh, and saw the, the last point I'd make here is the value of GEOINT as the underpinning for the integration of all of the rest of right. the intelligence disciplines. Uh, as I like to say, well, of course I'm the big GEOINT cheerleader. I mean, that's my job. But I didn't make the rules up that where really matters. A piece of intelligence lacking the where and the when is somewhat, un, you know, somewhat marginal in right. its value. And so, uh, again, I've tied timing through PNT to this GEOINT business, and then, and then the underlayment of how you integrate and connect pieces of the puzzle come back to where things happened and where people were uh, in place and time. And that also gets back to your earlier question about XYZ mm -hmm. plus T. Do you see a, a kind of a dispersion of GEOINT knowledge beyond the specialists? Are you seeing the butter bar lieutenants and the company commanders and others understanding this concept a lot better than they would have 15, 20 years ago to where you may not necessarily need somebody working for NGA Ford deployed that the, the people on the ground are kind of understanding the basic concepts and using them to their advantage? Uh, so, look, what a fantastic question and what a timely question. Uh, when you look back at World War II, uh, the the numbers of clerk typists that were required uh, in, in the Pentagon, in headquarters. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to, to visit Churchill's war room right, uh, just a few days ago. The, the, the room set aside for the clerk typists and, uh, and how, how they work 24-7 to, to create the orders and things. And we've seen them go away, right, because we went to word processing and it just became part of a common skill set. I think there is a certain element of this that indeed, especially with respect to you know this thing we know as GIS, Geospatial Information Systems, uh, is going to increasingly be just a, a, a core skill set of people. Understanding where you are in place and time and being able to use uh, easily accessible, uh, you know, retrievable, usable geospatial data and information I think is going to become part of the basic load, if you will, across the board. I think the higher order skills of, of, of GeoInt and how it all uh, comes together and, and to include the data analytics and the data visualization uh, and that XYZT aspect, uh, there will be a need for that. There will be a need to value add, the need to understand uh, sensors that, that give us an advantage uh, in, in the intelligence and defense community that collect information that our adversaries don't understand and can't anticipate. So there's going to be a, a role for uh, special niche things and highly classified things. But to your point, yeah, I think that those basic geospatial, traditionally things we've known as, as pure geospatial skills, are going to be expected, they're just going to be expected to be uh, in someone's mm -hmm. kit bag. We, we've talked about geospatial almost in a vacuum so far in this conversation, but you know, we mentioned SIGINT and Comet, and, you know, obviously there's human and NASA and everything else. 
it doesn't operate in a vacuum in the real world. Um, the, I want to wrap up the collaboration with subject matter experts in the other ends about uh, either kind of one-on-one or as part of a team. Um, because it seems like multi-int products have always better, multi-layered, you know, that the geo-int can perhaps provide a foundation for collection of other ints and analysis of other ints, but is there a vice versa that works here? Are, are you guys basing some of your targeting on SIGINT or HUMINT, you know, is there is integration the best practice even when it comes to something that seems almost like it operates on its own, like GON? Yeah, we are, we are as a community at our best when we're uh, aggressively integrating. Uh, I actually caused a stir some years ago when I stood up at a at a, a conference and said that, again, with the asterisk, the caveat of putting something very special sorts of sensors that are doing things our adversaries don't understand. But put that aside, that I would not build another sensor until, I in, until we had integrated everything we had. Uh, because there are so many things that, that happened in stovepipes. And uh, as I think I heard you know, Mike Hayden, uh, General Mike Hayden, say one time, you know, there's all this uh, hate for stovepipes, but without stovepipes, the, you know, the room would just be filled with smoke. So that there's some value, certainly, to having specialists in the, the vertical disciplines that you mentioned working to extract every single thing they can out of that discipline. But it, it is indeed that, that cross-cutting integration is, is where I think you gain the advantage, the incremental advantage over our adversaries that, that truly makes the difference. Uh, and so right, if we talk about things as simple as tipping and queuing, right, a, a SIGINT hit from about uh, from an airfield that we didn't think was active and never, never had any indication was active. And so in the grand scheme of all the things we can image in a day had probably fallen off the list, suddenly should excite the system mm-hmm. and say, wow, we haven't seen a SIGINT hit from this airfield for X amount of years. Let's, that's an active radar. Let's take a look at it. Right? So uh, a human, uh, the ability to... Uh, uh, get at the blueprints of a nuclear facility somewhere, a nuclear test facility, and then be able to model that and understand that helps us understand uh, whether that facility is operating or not or what capacity it's operating. Uh, you know, I, there's sort of endless right, right, sort absolutely. of anecdotes that I can say, but uh, suffice it to say that it is indeed so much about integration, right? When... Uh, Jim Clapper and Robert Cardillo went in as the uh, Ro- Jim went in as the director of national intelligence, and, and Robert was the deputy director f- of national intelligence for intelligence integration. They declared that as their one priority, and for the entirety of their time in those jobs, they worked towards integrating mm-hmm. the community at every level, and that was looking for both efficiencies in terms of you know everything from desktop computers to moving to the cloud. Uh, to operational execution of intelligence operations at a fully integrated level because each int operating uh, as an integrated part of a whole is incredibly powerful. Well, that's national integration within the IC. I wonder about multinational cooperation because, of course, that that is an emphasis within the broader IC, whether it's the Five Eyes or working with our partners around the world. Is that a emphasis of GeoInt as well? Absolutely, and in, in fact... Uh, the lead punch for openness, uh, you might say, is often GeoInt, because m- much of what's done in GeoInt, certainly through the, the pieces that are, are the geospatial stuff, uh, is unclassified. 
and easy to share with allies. Again, my, my example earlier of being able to go and help a country uh, develop precision geospatial uh, information of its own country, of its borders, so to be able to share that with them uh, is, is using our technology, something we've got to immediately uh, give them a, an economic advantage, a security advantage, a public safety advantage. Uh, and, and so we have privileged relationships, right, within the Five Eyes community. But GeoInt, I think, opens up a tremendous opportunity for sharing and relationships uh, in a much broader context. Uh, and that's really something uh, that I think we're all you know, concerned about is, back to my statement earlier about General Stan McChrystal and forcing a sharing well outside of a normal comfort zone of intelligence to allied forces who are fighting alongside uh, us, uh, is coming to grips with that and, and, and saying, you know, we, it almost feels sometimes like we got precious few allies around this globe. And ought we not be doing everything we can to solidify relationships, create trust, and share information? Uh, and obviously stopping at, at the line of endangering uh, our sources and methods. Right. Uh, but I think there are a lot more people leaning farther forward, and geo is one of the places that allows you to sort of push that envelope. Well, I would think even more. I mean, there's so many potential uh, flashpoints uh, in the world today focused on terrain or focused on territory, whether it's the melting Arctic or the South China Sea or Kashmir or, you know, the West Bank. I mean, this is the, the, the debates and conversations and wars being fought over where a line is or what, what terrain is there or what resources might be available. It seems to me that the future is going to make GeoInt be even more important. Yeah, I mean, look, you're the historian here. <laughs> um, it, it has always been thus. Where matters in a unique way. Again, that's not uh, aggrandizing this GeoInt thing that I happen to be very closely aligned with. Th- them's the rules. Right. Uh, and, and because some guys with uh, you know, good scotch and cigars in London drew some arbitrary lines on a map, uh, doesn't mean that uh, cultures and religions recognized uh, that those were valid. We are right now, uh, as a nation and, and as, a, uh, as, as a global enterprise, <laughs> facing some very interesting things that are going to happen uh, with respect to the Kurds. And so, you know, someone who's in northwestern Iran has never really necessarily grasped this whole idea of being Iranian, right. but rather a Kurd, right? And, uh, and, and southwestern Turkey and northern Syria uh, and, and, and. And suddenly we've got a Kurdish resurgent Kurdish identity, Kurds who fought alongside us uh, at, at this flashpoint between Iran and uh, the Russians and us and the Turks. And, and so that gets right to the heart of your issue. I mean, there is no better exemplar of that, uh, sadly, frighteningly, uh, than what's happening right there. But this idea of understanding all layers of geography, people sometimes say, well, what, what is this geospatial stuff? You know, I, I, I got handed the blank map by my social studies teacher and <laughs> had to go through the terror of what country is what, where's the capital, what's the name of this river, what's the name of this mountain range? But it's about every layer there, right? It's about those political boundaries, but it's also about the human uh, element that, that, that resides on there and history, because I think certainly uh, 
there's a little ethnocentrism here in the United States that it seems to force us to, uh, uh, I don't say learn this lesson over and over, because I, and learning it would, would suggest that you don't make the mistake again. We, we observe over and over again that we ignore this human geography dimension right. uh, at great peril. Well, we've gone, the last couple of questions I've led you from, you know, military operations to national level conversations to, you know, global conversations. I want to take it the exact opposite direction and really work it down to the real lower level, state, local, local law enforcement. Because it, as far as my understanding, the GEOINT was, was a huge resource for things like Hurricane Katrina relief and Sandy relief in the deep water horizon. You know, how has the, how have these national, you know, tools like the NGA been used to help those kind of things in, in the past? Yeah, this is, this is something that's near and dear to my heart. In fact, we just today <laughs> hit the streets with our first special edition of our magazine, which is focused on public safety. Uh, I would say that I got this uh, religion uh, in some ways previously, but it certainly became solidified. I, I had just taken over the source operations job at NGA, responsible for all the satellite tasking, uh, just before C Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. And under Jim Clapper's leadership, uh, NGA leaned very much forward in supporting forces there. The uh, same support that we were providing in Iraq and Afghanistan, the same vehicles and the same individuals were pre-deployed down there and uh, you know, sat out on the pier with the command ship uh, um, to, to give the exact same kind of support we were doing for the military. And that was sort of unprecedented at the time. Uh, we worked closely to, with the Air Force to get a U-2 overflight just before uh, the hurricane made landfall to have a baseline. And, and I remember fighting for the, the final flight to get down to Plaquemines Parish. Um, as I look back, and that, that story hasn't been told, and sadly there's an analog happening in um, Puerto Rico right now, right. Um, that was a national tragedy, what, what occurred. And, I, and, and history will judge us harshly, uh, but I am uh, professionally, probably one of the most important times in my career uh, was when we leaned forward to support operations there. And in fact, in the White House after action review of Hurricane uh, Katrina and Rita, uh, there were two agencies called out for having succeeded. And that was the United States Coast Guard and the iconic picture of Coast Guard helicopters mm -hmm. picking people off roofs and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And the American people, while we should be embarrassed about what happened there and people dying on those bridges and in that convention center, uh, they should be very proud of the investment made by the intelligence community over time uh, that uh, was taken and turned and put directly in support of door-to-door -door search and rescue uh, and the execution of moving aid in and the things that happened there. And because of that groundbreaking uh, activity, it, it set the standard for everything since. And so whether it's California wildfires, uh, you know, the floods in Houston post-hurricane, uh, activities in Florida, m mudslides uh, you know, in the northwest, uh, supporting decision making with respect to you know getting uh, Alaska and greater surrounds mapped to understand the impact of global warming, yet GeoInt is involved in all of that, right. and in fact a, a decent amount of my time over the last eighteen months is beginning out and talking to audiences. Uh, you know, one of my recent ones, the state GIS convention for North Carolina, 
a thousand geospatial practitioners. And I walked up on the stage and I said, you're all geoenters and you just don't know it. <laughs> and, I, and I got some pretty confused looks and even some, um, some crossed arms and, and you know, uh, furrowed brows. But by the end, I think my point to them was, you have, you have got a skill which is necessary but now insufficient in the new world. And your ability to manage mapping information and build maps to help people make decisions is great. But you've got to be able to understand remote sensing from phones to drones to space in a way that that one class you took sophomore year is not gonna, didn't provide and doesn't provide in a rapidly changing technological environment. And you've got to understand data analytics, data management, how to get at all this data, open source data that's available to you. Uh, and, then, and then the visualization, because none of it matters if you can't rapidly put it before a decision maker who can assimilate it and, and, and drive action from it. So uh, I think by the end of my talks, they're kind of convinced. Yeah. And, and my walk-off line is, you either need to become geoenters or you're probably going to be replaced by somebody who is. Right. And, uh, and I say that with you know, love and, and, and kindness. <laughs> I mean, I also think about how it can be used effectively in operations other than war, as it's euphemistically called. I, I deployed to Bosnia in the 1990s, and I was there uh, f during the war uh, over Kosovo. Uh, and I, I certainly benefited uh, from the ability of geoenters uh, to uh, give me a better understanding of the terrain there, because we, you know, not only is it a country, Bosnia is a country the size of the state of Tennessee, but has 8 million landmines that are still undiscovered. And we're searching for mass graves and for guys who had just basically slipped into the countryside who were wanted for war crimes. And then Kosovo was an area of the world that most of us didn't understand very well, certainly terrain-wise. And I even think of places like Darfur and, and, and some of the uh, humanitarian crises and the, the kind of the genocides that have been taking place. We talk about over time. It seems to be an effective way of watching that genocide in real time. Whether we do something about it or not is a whole other question. <laughs> you talk about moral failings, but that, that seems to be an effective way uh, to track some of these humanitarian crises. Yes. So, again, I, w I was talking about some of the things, disaster response yeah. going on here in the United States, but certainly whether it's a response to Ebola, uh, where NGA did a, a groundbreaking uh, uh, thing of releasing its, the bulk of its data sets publicly so that NGOs and others would all have access to it. Um, re response to you know earthquake damage, whether it's in, in Haiti, uh, Indonesia. Uh, the uh, ability to respond globally. Uh, you know, I talked about giving a country the opportunity to have precision uh, geospatial information about itself. Well, when a, when a country's in extremis, and you're able to go in and say, here was the baseline, here's what's changed, here's what it, you're now able to do, um, th that is a huge difference maker. And, and it's the, it, it, it is a multiplier for organizations that are coming in, the NGOs that are coming in, countries that are responding, to have accurate information about what's going on, have up-to-date uh, images that are showing you the difference between you know what was and what is and being able to make decisions about that and being able to plan priority of effort uh, in a situation where people are in need. So, you know, you, you brought up some fantastic examples. Again, uh, I'm inspired by you as a historian. Uh, the Dayton Accord, uh, right? There's a famous anecdote about 
the three D visualization that was created of of the um, of the borders mm-hmm. and getting the getting the parties to stand around this visualization and be able to understand it in three dimensions and kind of all look each other in the eye and go, well, we've never really agreed on this border before, but we're all standing here, right. and they just flew it for us. Uh, so that was a that's a very powerful anecdote in geoint history. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Serbs, right, sticking telephone poles out from under cover to confuse uh, us about where they had tanks and what the right. number of tanks they had. And then as we counted their equipment coming out of the country when when uh, when the situation changed, and it didn't match anything uh, that that we thought there was, and of course uh, the advent of UAVs. That's when we saw, in fact, the Army fire, flying the Predator UAV as an advanced concept technology mm-hmm. demonstration. The first deployment of the Hunter UAV by the Army, learning what that meant to be able to have those eyes forward, supplementing what had always been maybe high altitude reconnaissance from a U-2 or SR-71 or you know national uh, spy satellites, if you will, and what it took to get that and pushed forward. Right. Let me let me. We're, we're, this will be released about a week and a half after we sit here and record it, but we are one day removed, or day and a half removed, from the release of a bunch of bin Laden documents uh, by CIA. And, of course, that always harkens back to everyone talking about the raid itself to gather these documents. And, and people may not know the role that NGA played in the final raid against bin Laden. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I've seen, I've been to the CIA museum, I've seen the actual compound model that was made based on overhead reconnaissance and the, the kind of the genius and the, the expertise of the analyst who understood the terrain. Yeah, I, I think it's a great historical example of the value of, of, of GeoInt. And per our earlier conversation, in the context of an integrated intelligence mm-hmm. picture, Everybody did their job. Uh, everybody had to go on their piece of that, and uh, ultimately, in the hands of the all-source analysts who were making the calls about what they believed was going on uh, in this compound, being able to go back in time and look at historical imagery to to see what had developed at that site over time. At what point did the walls get higher? At what point uh, did, did we see barbed wire? When were things happening there that that in retrospect, mm-hmm. uh, were out, uh, weren't, weren't normative. And I think that was all informed by some of what I talked about earlier, this ability to take uh, unmanned aerial vehicles and, and stare, right, and, and develop what be the, the, the term of the art was, is, uh, you know, develop pattern of life. So what was the pattern of life of, of this facility? What looked normal? What looked abnormal? Who is this person that was pacing in in uh, in the garden and behind the wall? Uh, how tall was he? Was he limping? Was he dragging a dialysis right. machine behind him? Right. All these things. Uh, what was the power draw? And you think about over time, everything in the arsenal was brought to bear to provide the very best picture to a. Uh, for the National Command Authority, President Obama to have to make a really, really tough call. Uh, and then B, uh, those special operations forces that, you know, had uh, really were taking on an incredibly uh, challenging mission 
both in terms of, of terrain and the knowns versus the unknowns and the things that all had to go right to get them back, but built on years of experience, again, of doing uh, multiple raids in an evening based on developing intelligence. Um, it, GON is just infused right. throughout that whole thing, and uh, as you've said, uh, and many people have had the opportunity to see the model, which was this very realistic model that was built that helped the special operators understand uh, what they would be facing and have contingency plans uh, that, in fact, you know, came into play with the uh, uh, hard landing of, of the right. one helicopter, et cetera, uh, doors that, that didn't, uh, weren't as easily breached as had been planned, and uh, contingencies to, to assist them. So it, it is a case study in the power of integrated intelligence. Intelligence, uh, then, that integrated intelligence uh, in an all-source sense being able to do everything from inform the decision of the president, go, no go, all the way down to tactical decisions right. on movement on the ground. So we, we may have a lot of listeners out there who are, are college, grad students, early career, or maybe even thinking about a career change like you did early in your, uh, your Army career. Um, and so I do want to ask you know, a little bit about USGIF because there, there are opportunities here. Your educational mission really focuses on helping people who want to have a career in intelligence. Can you tell me a little bit about the the role of USGIF, what it is in the basic level, and and some of the degree programs and scholarships that you guys sponsor for those who are interested in looking at this as a future? Yeah, so so look, again, going back uh, to the the, the genesis of all this, we made up the term GEOINT. It it didn't exist. Yes, the peace parts exist, the history back to the Army Map Service and Lewis and Clark and the Surveyor-in-Chief, the first Surveyor-in-Chief, George Washington, uh, and then back through the National Photographic Interpretation Center at the CIA and the Central Imagery Office that managed the tasking, but uh, the precursor of, uh, you know, NPIC going back to, uh, you know, high-altitude aircraft and uh, the low low flights in World War II and pigeons in World yeah. War One, right? Uh, balloons in the Civil War. So all this co- all this comes forward to this term that a bunch of people made up: geospatial intelligence. So they had a problem. The good news was, and the government was relatively functional then here in Washington, <laughs> uh, that they could get it put into a bill and signed into law in the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2004. Suddenly, geo ends a term. Academia says, that's fascinating. What degree do you need for this geoint thing? Uh, Contractors say, how do I show past performance in this thing that you just made up? What workforce do I need to do geoint? And, and, and. Because you made something up and everyone had to figure out how to come to the party. And so that's why I tell you, the founders of this organization who said, we've got plenty of trade associations. Um, let's do something different. Let's create an educational nonprofit foundation, a really important distinction then and now, a 501c3 educational non-lobbying foundation with the idea, really simply, that raising the idea of GEOINT would be that proverbial rising tide that raises all boats, that everybody wins if there's a, a better common understanding of what this is and how it grows. So 
you know, what's our mission? It's embodied sort of in our tagline. One, build the community. Create this GeoInt community that came out of nothing. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful uh, SIGINT community, right, born of tremendous history and pride of uh, breaking code and relationships in, in, in previous wars and that has come forward and now into the cyber world. There's a wonderful but much more quiet history <laughs> and culture in the, in the espionage you know, the human world. And so how could we begin to create a home for this idea of geoint? So build the community. Create a community rallied around this new thing. Let people celebrate where they came from, whether it's imagery or geospatial or, or, or data management, but understand they could self-identify now as part of this larger group going forward. Uh, advance the trade craft. Well, what is the tradecraft of GeoInt? Right. You know, in the early days, uh, volunteers got together and said at a whiteboard and said, all right, here's what we think this GeoInt thing is. Here are the discrete tasks associated with it. And then the last one is to accelerate innovation. Where could we find at the time where it wasn't uh, taking off necessarily in, in the civilian world? How could we get an, uh, an advantage into the hands of our, our young men and women who were fighting and dying in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Horn of Africa and, and give them the operational advantage to defeat uh, you know, uh, the, what was going on with IEDs and to better enable our special operations forces. And, and so the foundation comes together and is formed in, in uh, January of 2004 and with the express idea of doing those three things. So where are we today? Uh, it's about a $7 million a year operation, about 250 member companies, organizations, and academic institutions, about 1,500 individual members who are sort of recognizing that this is their professional association now. We've got 14 colleges and universities that we accredit to grant GeoInt certificates with about 850 students who've achieved them to date. Are those spread throughout the country, too? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything from Northeastern University right. to, to USC, and I, I like to brag that we have both USCs on, on yeah. both coasts, so that the, if you say which one, I say both, yeah. uh, and everywhere in between. The bulk of those, uh, our certificates are at the graduate level. Uh, however, the Air Force Academy and West Point have such strong undergraduate programs that when they finish... Uh, their majors in geosciences normally, they qualify for our, certi- our certificate. Uh, it is inherently multidisciplinary. Uh, that's usually the biggest uh, burden for schools to, to uh, seek our accreditation, is to understand that they're going to have to bring in more than one department. It usually has to get up to the, the provost level right. to force some, you know, if you thought intelligence integration was tough, you should <laughs> try integrating across departments at a university. Yeah, yeah no, I, I used to be there. I understand <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> um, and, and so we've established that. We now have individual professional certification so that you can take a test and, and uh, demonstrate that you have a mastery of different parts or uh, if you take each of the three examinations and then uh, a few other steps, you can earn our universal GeoInt professional designation and that's really beginning to catch on. You know, we hope we are very well known for our annual symposium, which draws about four to five thousand people to talk about geospatial and intelligence. And that bounces around the country. Yeah, well, usually too, in so the southeast, yeah. we'll be we'll be back in Tampa this year, and we're excited. That gives us immediate access uh, to MacDill Air Force Base and and uh, CENTCOM mm-hmm. and SOCOM. But also in the wake of the recent hurricanes, I think it'll be a particularly important time to talk about the role of GeoInt 
uh, for first responders and disaster relief. And then scholarships too, right? So right. that you're trying so to help people move into this career. We've awarded over a million dollars in scholarships at this point over time. Uh, so we awarded this past year, I think, $117,000 in scholarships. And that's everything from a, a couple to graduating high school students all the way uh, to students uh, pursuing their Ph.D. Uh, I uh, am just uh, sort of beam with pride when I take a look at a couple of our schools now where we have, because we've been at this since 2004, uh, at, at, at George Mason, uh, there's a professor who got his Ph.D. with the help of our scholarship now teaching in a, a program where they've got a geoint bachelor, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and Ph.D. in geospatial intelligence. And our scholarship enabled that professor to, to teach who will now touch you know thousands right. of students in this field over time. Uh, and I'm a little sappy and cry at movies <laughs> and stuff, but, I mean, that gives me goosebumps, right. right? When you go back to the decision to say, this isn't going to be about all about garnering contracts and um, influencing Congress. This is going to be about doing good. And, again, it was sort of easy in 2003, 2004 with the amount of money right, right flowing in for uh, post-9-11 operations. But what's really incredibly satisfying is to see that we grew through the economic downturn in 2008. We continued to grow through sequestration in 2012. Uh, and we've remained strong and growing this whole time, even as there's been this tremendous change. And so we see smaller companies from the West Coast showing up at our event, showing up on our membership roles, even as some traditional companies uh, might be refocusing, perhaps, to cyber or, or other business areas. So we can even see the dynamism of GeoEnt reflected in, in our membership, at our events, and the types of things we're doing. Uh, our members often uh, form working groups around things that are of common interest. Our small sat working group is thriving. Uh, we now have a machine learning and automated intelligence working group, right? I don't think anybody saw that in 2004. Right. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, we, we had an activity-based intelligence working group that actually has transformed itself into an analytic transformation working group because there is this idea of changing how we do analysis based on the tools that are now available and the data that's now available in the intelligence community. So there's a lot going on in the foundation, and it's very exciting. And for people, most of this information will be available on the USGIF website? Absolutely. Uh, two great resources, usgif.org. It's all there. Uh, and we are, uh, you know, we're social media um, and the web. And our print and magazine, which is also available, uh, Trajectory Magazine, is at trajectorymagazine.com. Uh, it's, it's free to subscribe. Get on the mailing list. Uh, it, it, we put a lot of time and effort, blood, sweat, and tears <laughs> into that magazine, and we're very proud of it. And it's, it's, it's won a few awards, and, uh, and we love to show it off. Keith Masbach is the CEO of the United States Geospatial Intelligence Foundation and a board member here at the National Spy Museum. Keith, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. And thanks so much for the opportunity, and I look forward to uh, talking more in the future. Absolutely.